Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. And that can be found in the Pew Bible starting on page 683. Six eighty three. Okay, Matthew five, seventeen through twenty. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse nineteen. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Lord, again, as we come around your word this morning, we sang it earlier, you um, search much deeper within, through the way things appear, and you're looking right into our hearts. So look into our hearts this morning, expose them to what it is that you want to put in there this morning, and teach us about yourself. We may grow in our understanding of you, of ourselves, and how we're to live our life in a way that's pleasing to you as kingdom citizens. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I once heard a story that illustrates the tremendous temptation that we all have to make ourselves appear bigger than we are. It's about a newly promoted colonel who had moved into a recently built makeshift office during the Gulf War. He had just arrived and was getting things organized in his office when out of the corner of his eye, he saw a private coming his way, carrying a toolbox. Wanting to seem important, he quickly spun around in his chair, he picked up his phone, and trying to impress this private, began saying, Yes, General Schwarzkopf. Yes, yes, of course. I think that's an excellent plan. You, you've got my support on it. Thanks for checking with, in with me, and let's touch base soon, Norm. Goodbye. And he briskly hung up the phone and turned around. And what can I do for you, he asked the privates. Uh, I'm just here to hook up your phone, <laughs> came the rather sheepish reply. <laughs> Pretense. Pretense abounds. Many are trying to pretend to be more than they really are. So much pretending goes on, even in churches. It goes on in the name of Christianity so that the unbelieving world finds it hard to accept genuine followers. As the prelude to a DC Talk song put it in quoting Brennan Manning, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips. 
than walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let's quit trying to appear better than we are. Let's give up on on trying to stuff ourselves into someone else's mold of what a good Christian should be. The unbelieving world is quite unimpressed with hypocrisy and a superficial one-size-fits-all Christianity. They're tired of it. We are in the midst of making our way through the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon that calls us to counter-cultural Christianity, to think as Jesus thinks, to embrace Jesus' values. And as we look at the passage that was read, I want to remind you of the context. Last week's passage, you recall, was about our influence in the world as salt and light. To be salty, to be shining, that is a contagious Christianity that the world desperately needs to see. And on the heels of speaking about the function of kingdom citizens as salt and light, Jesus now turns to the foundation for functioning as salt and light. And it's no mistake that these words about true righteousness and the preeminence of God's word are placed right here. And on the other side of this passage this morning, Jesus is going to devote much of this sermon to exposing the faulty principles and motivations of the legalistic system that had replaced God's revealed word. And it was aimed right at the scribes and the Pharisees. For them, pretense was the name of the game. They gave themselves to the outer life, that which people could see. And by appearances, they were righteous and clean, yet their inner life was filthy. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be addressing issues such as anger and lust and lying and worry and and judging others. I hope that doesn't scare you away. Because if we're to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we must address these matters of the heart. The very basic principle that Jesus introduces here is one that must be applied to every area of our lives. Righteousness really is a matter of the heart. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. Where do we get this righteousness? Well, that's the very thing Jesus addresses and answers for us in this passage this morning. And since it is so critical for us to understand, to stop right here, to understand true righteousness before we can go any further with this sermon series, since it is our default in the Christian community to look at and polish the outward appearance over the stuff that's on the inside, I want to use a visual for you this morning. Now, some of you walked right into this this morning and kind of even commented on how I look. Pink shirt, pretty nice. That's what you see on the outside. This is what you don't see on the inside. You don't see any of this. I know, how did Donna let me go out of the house like this? There's more. What a mess. Horrible. You didn't see any of that. 
Now, I'll put my jacket back on so I don't distract you the rest of the sermon. Life on the underside. We need to talk about it. Have you ever come to an old board that had been lying on the ground for quite some time and you turn the board over? What do you discover? Likely, you found an enormous city of bugs lying underneath. And it's clear that these bugs, hundreds of them, did not appreciate the exposure of their life on the underside of the board. Jesus turns over the board to view our lives on the undersides. He comes up to the Pharisees and teachers of the law and he exposes their self-righteousness and states plainly to all those listening in, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's going to turn some heads. The Jews had a saying, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. Jesus says, surpasses it. Now, if their righteousness wasn't good enough, there's not going to be any hope for anyone. We're going to come back to verse 20 in a moment. I want to turn our attention to the verses that were read that led up to this very radical statement in verse 20. If we take Jesus seriously, then we must take Scripture seriously. And if we take Scripture seriously, then we must take righteousness seriously. I want to give that to you again. It's the bottom line. If we take Jesus seriously, we must take Scripture seriously. And if we take Scripture seriously, we must take righteousness, true righteousness, inner righteousness seriously. Well, let's break this down into two statements. If we take Jesus seriously, we must take Scripture seriously. Jesus says in verse 17, follow along with me, Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there was very good reason for Jesus addressing his view of the law here. Jesus fit none of the common molds of the religious leaders. He did not scrupulously follow the traditions of men. It was said by others that Jesus was not swayed by men. Don't you wish that characterized your life? I do. Don't you wish that was said of you more often? That person right there is not swayed by men. He fears God. And it seems that Jesus at times went out of his way to disturb the categories and disrupt their neat little systems. I mean, how else can you explain Jesus' deliberate choice to heal on the Sabbath? He could have done it the day before. He could have done it the day after. And so in the minds of many is this thought, what does Jesus think about the law? He must be doing away with the law or or regulating it to minor importance. So Jesus says in verse 17, do not think, knowing this is exactly what they were thinking. Kind of had to be a little eerie for them. He's reading their minds. You can just kind of hear Twilight Zone music playing in the background. They didn't know what was going on. Don't you think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus is saying, let's clear up this misunderstanding right now. What did Jesus think about the law? 
why I've entitled this sermon, The Bible That Jesus Read. Borrowing it from a title of a book by Philip Yancey, and for my purposes, to speak of Jesus' view of the Old Testament. As a Jewish boy, no doubt, Jesus would have learned the Hebrew Bible from infancy. The Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read. Now, of course, that's not to deny his deity. He was and is fully God. He could, we could argue that at the, as the second person of the triune God, he was there when Scripture was breathed into existence. He was there and carrying along the various human writers as they penned the words of Scripture. Yet, in being fully human, he would have grown up under the hearing of the Old Testament. And when Jesus uses that phrase there in verse 17, the law and the prophets, that's a summation of the Old Testament writings. Old Testament was often referred to as the law and the prophets, and sometimes added a third component, the writings, the law and the prophets. That meant the whole Old Testament. So what was Jesus' attitude toward the Bible he read, the Old Testament? He didn't come to abolish it, he says. Now the word abolish means to utterly overthrow or destroy. It had the idea of smashing something to the ground to obliterate it completely. It was to render something useless. Jesus said plainly that his life, his teachings weren't meant to set aside the Hebrew Bible, not at all. On the contrary, the Word of God still held authority. He came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And the word fulfill means to fill up and complete. And so in what way did Jesus fulfill, complete the law and the prophets? In what way did Jesus fill up the Old Testament? Well, we could say that for one thing, his teaching gave the Old Testament full meaning. In this sense, Jesus then did fulfill it. He fulfilled the Old Testament by fully meeting all of its demands. His life, he perfectly kept every part of the law. He was perfectly righteous. Jesus was indeed flawless in his obedience. So there's a sense in which this would explain the meaning of filled or fulfill. But the truest sense in which he fulfilled the Old Testament was by being its fulfillment. It's what we're remembering around the communion table this morning. He did not only teach it fully, he was it fully. He did not come simply to teach righteousness, but came as divine righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the law by bringing it to completion by his person, his teaching, and his work on the cross. And in one single event on the cross, the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament found its perfect fulfillment. And since Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, gives the Bible Jesus read preeminence, as well as the New Testament writings. From Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, 6, it was inspired by Christ, it points to Christ, and it fulfilled by Christ. And so Jesus continues, verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, or truly I say to you, or amen, so be it without qualification until heaven and earth pass away, which is the end of time as we know it. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the smallest letter of the Hebrew Bible, the smallest mark 
says in the NIV, stroke of a pen, the smallest mark that would help distinguish one letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet from another remains to be valid and pertinent through all the stages of time throughout all of history. Quite simply, Jesus is saying this. As long as the universe exists, the scripture stands. Not even the tiniest, seemingly most insignificant part of God's word will be erased. If we take Jesus seriously, we must take scripture seriously. It is the unchanging, eternal word. This, folks, will never, ever pass away. This is never irrelevant. This is not to be changed improved upon or done away with, it is always relevant. It's not to be messed with for our times. We're not to change it. All the words of Scripture have authority, Jesus says, and as we'll see in the weeks to come, it speaks to relevant issues in our lives. Every single area of our life, it speaks to. There was a man who had an appointment with a specialist who was going to perform surgery on him. This man arrived early for the appointment in a little office of a rural town. And there was no receptionist at the desk. And seeing the door to the doctor's office ajar, the patient slowly opened the door. He found the young surgeon deeply engrossed in reading. The surgeon didn't hear the patient come in, so the patient cleared his throat. Startled, the young surgeon closed the book, which the patient recognized as the Bible. So he asked, Doc, does the reading the Bible help you before or after an operation? And the surgeon gave this one answer. He said, during, (laughs) during. That's true. This is relevant to everything we do. That's what he's saying. Some say the Bible is not relevant today. It doesn't speak to our times. Times have changed, and so the Bible does not fit our day, some say. Listen, the Bible always fits. It is the standard by which a true fit is measured. It's been said this way, the world does not fit the Bible, and not because the world has changed, but because the Bible has not changed. And we've lost our way as a nation in relationship to the Word of God and and His absolutes. There was a, uh, back three years ago, there was an in-depth interviews survey that were conducted with many young adults across America. The research team asked about the young people's moral lives. And what is disturbing here is not so much how they're living their lives as to how poorly their thinking is about moral issues. When asked to describe a moral dilemma that they had faced, Two-thirds of these 18 to 23-year-olds either couldn't answer the question or describe moral dilemmas as problems like not being able to afford rent or not having enough quarters to feed the parking meters. Folks, those weren't moral issues at all. That's all they could come up with. When asked about wrong or evil, they generally agreed that murder and rape were wrong, but aside from these extreme cases, moral thinking didn't enter the picture, even when considering things like drunk driving or cheating in school or cheating on your partner. One young person said, I don't really deal with right and wrong that often. Really? 
Many said, moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. It's personal. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say? And still many others would answer, I would do what I thought made me happy or how I felt. I mean, what makes something right is how I feel about it. How disheartening. I guess we're not doing a very good job as being the salt of the earth. And worse, how much of this kind of stinking thinking has snuck into our lives, into the church today? See, there's a lot said about revival in our nation. We we speak of our nation getting back to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot really speak of reviving the heart and soul of our nation unless we first speak of reviving the heart and soul of the church. It starts there. Are we no longer salty and shining? Have we lost our influence in the world because we've surrendered biblical thinking and our biblical values to a tolerance of relativism? If we take Jesus seriously, we must take Scripture seriously. If we take Scripture seriously, we must take righteousness seriously. And that is what becomes obvious next. Follow along as I read verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of these the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now let's unpack this just a little bit in the time we have. Verse 19 is a little challenging here. It's challenging in the sense of trying to understand exactly what Jesus is getting at speaking of the least of the commandments. I mean, which of God's commandments would be the least of these commandments? Is it one of the Ten Commandments that not as important as another? Well, Jesus seems to be speaking the whole of the Old Testament. That's the context. And while on one hand to break one of God's commandments is to break all of them, on the other hand, there are degrees of sin spoken of in the Old Testament. Not every sin resulted in the same consequence. The sin of the high hand, for example, shaking your fist at God was greater in degree than the sin of failing to tithe herbs. The scribes and the Pharisees just would love to debate and love to argue about the categories as to which commands are greater and which commands are lesser in importance. And they would often let themselves off the hook in areas of justice and mercy and faithfulness and love and emphasize the more trivial matters like tithing herbs. And so Jesus goes right after this. And he says, while some commands are weightier than others, none are to be disregarded. And Jesus' point is this. Are we willing to obey God and walk in him in all areas of our lives, even in the little things? Are we willing to be obedient not only to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law? And that's where Jesus will take us next in showing us his righteousness that he gives to us, which is the righteousness of the heart. It's a completely different kind of righteousness than the way of religion. We should never be content, folks, we should never be content as the Pharisees were with an external, formal obedience and rigid conformity to the letter of the law in which we pride ourselves in being able to keep it. 
What does Jesus think about greatness according to verse 19? How does Jesus define greatness? Greatness is determined by one's view of Scripture as lived out in his teaching in life. We take Jesus seriously, we must take God's word seriously. If we take God's word seriously, we must take righteousness seriously. Not the outward kind. And that's the note Jesus ends on in this section before launching into a direct attack on the scribes and the Pharisees, their list of do's and don'ts, and anyone else who's content with an external formal obedience. So Jesus says, verse 20, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And to his works-oriented hearers, this no doubt rattled their thinking. To say that salvation is not by self-effort shot holes in their whole system. The one spiritual disease, G.K. Chesterton wrote, is thinking that one is quite well. And that is why Jesus reserved his harshest words for those who would not admit that they were helpless and in need of God. You see, outside of sin itself, Jesus opposes nothing more vehemently than the religion of human achievement. So unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus says you will, not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Surpasses. That was used of a river overflowing its banks. We have some picture of that lately, don't we? The water was far in excess than normal. And the righteousness Jesus speaks of, the kind that God desires, far exceeds anything we can come up with ourselves. It must be the righteousness that only God can give that exists in the redeemed, changed heart. No church, no ritual, no works, No philosophy, no man-made system has the power or the capability of bringing us to God. None of it. We can never reach Him in self-effort. This is where cults and religions fall short. It's based on what they can achieve. It's a system of works in, in one shape or another. They may talk about grace, but they mix works with it. It is a righteousness based on works. That's not the kind of righteousness that can find its way to God. You know, it's amazing, though, how many people will try any way but his way. What Jesus is about to go after in the rest of this sermon is not the Old Testament, but their understanding of the Old Testament. What Jesus criticizes is their misunderstanding of the law with the true direction in which the law points. Jesus bursts the borders of their relatively narrow context of legal interpretation and innovation which emphasizes the self-hypocritical righteousness, external, superficial righteousness. And instead, Jesus shows ways in which the righteousness he speaks of surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Read ahead. That's where we're going. That's why it's so important to get a hold of what this is all about. It's not the outward appearance, folks. It's not the external religion. It's not anything we can do on the outside that people go, whoa, he must be spiritual. Where do we get that idea? There's a righteousness, an inner righteousness that affects every single area of our lives and it is a matter of the heart. Jesus doesn't attack the law 
Well, that is his point in saying he did not come to abolish it. It's legalism Jesus attacks, which is the wrong use of the law. It's abuses of the law. It's to be more concerned about pretense than genuineness. And my prayer for my own life, my prayer for your life, my prayer for this church is that we're more about genuineness than we are pretense. We get to what's real. And that's why this sermon series is going to be so difficult. It's going to expose life on the underside. Jesus wants holiness, not hypocrisy. He wants righteousness, not ritual. He wants transformation of the heart, not traditions of men. It isn't the outside of the cup that he's after, but the inside of the cup, Matthew 23. When Howard Carter discovered the tomb of old King Tut, In 1924, he found that King Tut was buried in a coffin. There was this large outer coffin, and when they opened that large outer coffin, they looked inside, and there was another coffin overlaid with gold. They looked inside of that coffin, and there was another coffin. They looked inside of that coffin, and there was another coffin, which was solid gold. Really? And when they looked inside of that final coffin, there was King Tut wrapped in gold cloth. He had a gold mask on his face. But when they took the gold mask off of his face and they unwrapped the the gold cloth around his body, what did they find? Inside all of this was a dead, shriveled, leathery corpse. Outside, very beautiful. Inside, dead man's bones. It's what's on the inside that counts. Not the outer covering that we sometimes wear and the facade of gold that we put on. Loved ones, it really is what's on the inside that counts. Are you taking inner righteousness seriously. Am I? Lord, ah, it's so easy to fall in this trap of playing the game, to fall into pretense, to give the appearance we're doing better than we really are. You look on the insides. Man looks on the outward appearance. You look on the heart's. And that's unnerving. But there's also some encouragement there too as we know you see our heart even when our actions don't quite line up. You know our heart. But on the other side of that same coin is when we're giving a a sense that we're doing better than we really are. We're in the trap of performance. Knock us out of that, Lord. Help us to see that it's Jesus and his righteousness that changed our hearts so that inner righteousness is possible because of Jesus Christ. Not anything we can do ourselves. Help us to continue to look to Jesus and being the person you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We end where we began, all about Jesus. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior.